Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I am actually being joined by a very special guest. As my listeners know, my family and I recently visited San Antonio, Texas. And in honor of that, we actually did two episodes. Well, as luck would have it, my special guest actually used to live in San Antonio, Texas, and she has a crazy story to share about the railroad killer. So, we are revisiting the ghosts of San Antonio, but more like the serial killer of San Antonio and other places, as it turns out. So, please welcome my guest, Daisy! Thank you, Vina. <laughs> I was so excited to talk about this killer because he was a real-life boogeyman to me growing up. Because you lived, you were, what, in high school? Where were you? Yeah, I was absolutely in high school. When he started out, I was living in San Antonio, coincidentally. That's right. where he started out. And he kind of followed me through my high school, ended up in where I went to high school, ended up where I lived later in life in college. So, I grew up with this serial killer, and so that's why I wanted you to share about him. So, it was kind of like the moon was following you, this killer's following you? Yeah, I genuinely was scared of him at night as I slept in high school. So, how long was his reign of terror, would you say? He killed about seven years, seven years span. Okay, so that's definitely high school and college. Yeah, he yeah he went through high school, and then as I was leaving for college, that's kind of the end of his reign. And I will share some uh, secrets about where he ended up okay. and where I ended up. So we'll start at the beginning. So who was this uh, this son of a bitch, for lack of a better <laughs> term? So his name was Angel Resendez, although he was misnamed in the public. Everybody okay. called him Rafael Resendez Ramirez. It's unknown if he just called himself that or just the media got it wrong. So they don't know where, you don't know where this mishap, mistake happened. Correct. Okay. The FBI was actually looking for Rafael Resendez Ramirez, who never existed. Only Angel Resendez Ramirez did. So they called him the railroad killer. And I'll tell you a little bit about how he got his name. He was a Mexican Itinerant, so he came back and forth between uh, Mexico and the United States. He was a serial killer suspected in as many as 23 murders across the United States and Mexico in the 90s. So he was going back and forth killing people, correct? Oh, crossing the border, correct? And it's really unknown how many people in Mexico he killed or if he even did. Okay. Most of the documented murders that we know of are in the United States. So he got his name. He became known as the Railroad Killer as most of his crimes were committed near railroads where he had jumped off the trains he was using to travel across the United States. So free transportation, okay. (laughs) Correct. 
He killed at least 15 people, and he used rocks, a pickaxe, and other blunt objects, and a couple of times guns, mainly bludgeoning people to death. So his, unlike like the Golden State Killer, he didn't bring like his toolkit. He just was more of an opportunist uh, weapon, a weapon opportunist, whatever he could use at that spur of the moment to just kill. Correct. And I think that's what was so scary is there was no pattern. He just grabbed objects and went for it. His M.O. was so crazy. After each murder, he would linger in the homes, mostly to eat. Oh. He, so after he, he killed them, they're like, what you got to eat? Yeah, he would often make him a meal okay. in the house. He would, he would eat. He took sentimental items, and he also laid out the victim's driver's license. It was almost as if he made a meal, laid their license out to get to know the people he was dining in their home okay. or with. That's not creepy. You know, I've killed you. Who were you? Correct. He did care about his victims, it seemed. He wanted oh. to know who they were. <laughs> He often stole jewelry and other items and gave them, this was interesting, he gave them to his wife and mother who lived in Rodeo, Durango, Mexico. Much of the jewelry was sold and melted down, so he would give them money. It's been a constant, keep that in mind, how he takes care of his mom and his wife throughout his story. So he was married. Did he have children? Do we know this or no? Mm, Stay tuned. All right. So some of the stolen items that had been taken from the victims, they actually were returned by his wife and his mother after his surrender, which we'll get to later. All right. Well, I have a question for that. Okay. So money was sometimes left at the scene. So he had their driver's license sitting out. Sometimes he left money at the scene. I don't know if he was afraid to rob them or he just wanted a meal and not some money, but there was money often left at the scene. He raped some of his female victims. However, a lot of experts think rape was secondary because most of his victims were found covered. He wanted to make sure they were covered and otherwise obscure from immediate view. So when you say secondary, do you mean that he killed them first and then raped them, uh, raped the bodies? There's actually some of both. When the experts said secondary intent, that's what I looked up and it, It was, I think the experts were saying the reason they said that was because not every case was a rape and not everything, every murder was sexual. So basically he wasn't motivated by rape. Correct. Okay. Correct. And then, if you will, I will take you down the path of this real life boogeyman. Okay, you're you're a boogeyman. Yes. Yeah. San Antonio's boogeyman. (laughs) Yeah, for me, he was the boogeyman. I was genuinely scared of this Rafael Resendez Ramirez. So, starting in May 1991, I was 10 years old, So, af- and I was living in San Antonio, Texas. We'll just leave that the setting for myself. After serving 30 months for fraudulently applying for Social Security cards, weapons, and other charges related to illegally entering the country, he was in and out of jail. So, he had served time. He had been, he was already criminal. So, two and a half years. Correct. And then, July 1991... He had murdered, so May was after he had already served this time, and then July, that's when the first documented of his murders was. He murdered a 33-year-old Michael White, who was found in the yard of a house in San Antonio, Texas. He killed a man, so he killed men too. Yes, that's what you're going to see. He does not discriminate young, old, man, woman. There's no rhyme or reason to his... No pattern. Correct. 
And so he killed this guy in San Antonio, Texas in 1991. I was living in San Antonio, Texas during 1991. I was 10 years old. I remember hearing about this on the news. This Michael White died. It didn't all make sense until later. From 1991 to 97, however, he drifted back and forth across the border working. This was so interesting. He would work seasonal jobs in the U.S., illegally hopping freight trains. He would travel from to Florida when it was orange picking season and up to Kentucky when it was tobacco crop season. So he always did harvesting jobs along the railroad. He would hop on the train and hop off, always sending money to his wife and mother. He was at least consistent in making sure that they had received the laborers of his, <laughs> not his hard work, but I mean, his legal work. So he basically followed like the the seasons of fruit and tobacco leaves isn't fruit or vegetable, but. He was a migrant worker. Correct. That sent money home to his family. Correct. Correct. But he illegally hopped rides on the trades. So well, he probably didn't want to pay for a car. Correct. And it got him in trouble. He ended up getting more and more charges. So all this time. He's getting in trouble with the law. So in March 1997, he resumed his murderous ways, killing Jesse Howell and Wendy Von Huben, two teenage runaways from Woodstock, Illinois. Howell was bludgeoned to death and left near the tracks near Bellevue, Florida. So here he is in Florida, while Van Huben's remains were not found until after his arrest. So they found the guy, but not the wife after his arrest. They were teenagers though, right? Correct. They were runaways. Um, experts say that they were runaways that probably hopped on the train. So he probably met him on his travel right, right, and decided right. to kill them. Right. They were from Woodstock, Illinois. So now he's killed from San Antonio to Woodstock, Illinois. So he's tr- crossing state lines. Correct. And Raphael later admitted to raping sh- and strangling her to death and sodomizing her corpse. So this particular murder, he sexually assaulted her alive and dead. Okay. So then moving on, that was March, August, 97, he preyed on another young couple. Now, this one is super, super interesting. Another young couple he encountered near the railroad tracks in Lexington, Kentucky. Resendez fatally bludgeoned to death the 21-year-old University of Kentucky student, Christopher Mayer, then raped and viciously beat his girlfriend, Holly Dunn, a junior at the University of Kentucky. So he bludgeoned to death Chris... mayor and then he raped and beat holly dunn now what's interesting about holly dunn is her and chris were walking along the railroad tracks chris's idea on their way home from a party now how do you know it was chris's idea i'll tell you as we said chris died but holly though beaten stabbed in the neck and left for dead survived okay holly was bound with her own belt so her and Chris were at a party, right? Right. They didn't really know anyone. They had just met, started dating. And it was a really interesting story. Holly had flip-flops on with silver-painted toenails. Chris comes up, takes his shoe off, and said, hey, we have the same toenails. We should go out. He had silver-painted toenails okay. also. So they took a walk because they were bored at the party, and Chris decided to walk her down the tracks. Well, in her testimony in her story she said they were walking along the tracks they stayed there for a while and decided to go back to the party when they were walking back that's when they encountered rafael resendez ramirez 
He beat Chris to death with a rock. Actually, Holly said it was 52-pound rock. I don't know how they know the weight of it, but that was interesting. And he then, just straight lifted a 52-pound rock? Yeah, and he dropped it on his head oh. after he had already strangled him and beat him. Then he dropped the rock straight on his head. Holly managed to get the belt off of her hands, got to a house nearby. She said she was bloody. She had been knocked out. She awoken, made it to a house. And she survived. She's the only survivor of Resendez. Okay, so she's, and he, you said, we don't know what the, the body count might have been in Mexico, but in America it was 23? Correct. Okay. So she's only one of however many he attacked and murdered, 23 we know of. She's the sole survivor as the title of her book. She wrote a book about her survival of a serial killer, and she actually goes around as is, is an uh, inspirational speaker. You can book her for events. She talks on living your passions, safety and awareness, building a team to assist victims. She actually works with the police department to assist victims in recalling details of assault. Okay. So she has a big following So now. she took this terrible, uh, horrific moment and is decided she's going to define this horrific moment for her future and those that she, she helps. Correct. So that's pretty amazing. Correct. And what's so interesting is everybody in my town growing up and everybody in our area knew of Rafael Resendez Ramirez and knows of Holly Dunn. Right. And knows how horrific he was and knows the fullness and the weightness of her story. Right. So it's interesting. Okay. So moving on, that was between 1991 and 1997. So moving on to 1998 would leave a path of bloodshed, Resendez did all the way from northeastern Georgia to Houston, Texas. All three murders along this track involved home invasions. Now, October 1998, these are the murders that I was just telling you about from Georgia to Houston. 1998, he beat 87-year-old Leafy Mason to death with an antique iron. Then, December 1998, he bludgeoned Fannie Whitney Byers, 81, to death in her Carl, Georgia home. A week later, Resendez was back in Texas where he raped and murdered pediatric neurologist Claudia Benton, 39. He left behind fingers and DNA. So this is when we, the story broke open. They okay. found forensic evidence, DNA. They were starting to link all the murders. We heard about it in the news like, hey, this may be the same guy. This may be the same guy. But they were so far apart, as I just read, Texas to Georgia, that it was... It was hard for them to... For the different counties and agencies to start connecting the dots. Correct. And DNA uh, was left here in fingerprints, and that was the first time we heard about DNA and fingerprints in the case. I remember when it was a big deal. This is my junior year. So it was like their big break. We have potentially something that will be able to tie all these things together. Now, going back to Leafy, I think you said, mm -hmm. that was an older elderly man, and he was beaten by an antique iron is that correct? yeah a flat so was, iron a flat iron so was that something inside his house yes okay yep it was a home invasion and um he probably made him a meal i don't know what leafy liked to eat but he probably stayed there cooked right. up a meal um that's what was to me so scary is because there was no he wasn't um he wasn't partial to anyone it could be anytime any place right right so my 1999, 
I don't know where you were in 1999, but I was a senior in high school in Gonzales, Texas. That will be important later. Okay. Uh, Rafael Resendez was awaiting the birth of his daughter with his common-law wife, with whom he lived in a small rural hamlet of Rodeo, Mexico. So, so he's from this a small is, town. This is still the same chicka chicka boom boom oh from man. before. Same. Okay. The same wife. Now, do we know, and maybe I'm asking this prematurely, do we know if the wife had any suspicions that her husband was a killer? You know, I read so much research, and it doesn't seem that she had any suspicions, but I'll give you a little hint. She was instrumental in his demise. Mm-hmm. All right, so at the end, she plays it straight, sounds like. Yeah, it's definitely not a Bonnie and Clyde situation okay. with these guys. <laughs> okay. So he lived in Little Mexico. He went home, waited for his daughter to be born. By spring, though, he was back in the States with murder on his mind. So uh, senior prom time? Correct. Okay. May 1999. That was graduation. May 6, 1999. I graduated from high school. He broke into the home. Now, this is when things got real for me. He broke into the home of Norman Cernick. 46, and his wife, Karen, 47. They lived in the parsonage of the church. Their house was right behind the church. Norman was the pastor of the church. We were familiar with him and his church because my dad was a pastor. So Norman Cernick, he was a pastor in Weimar, Texas. That is only 46 miles from my house in Gonzales, Texas, where I now live. So 46 miles where I live, this will be important. Resendez, he caved in their skulls with a sledgehammer, then sexually defiled Karen's corpse. So again, here he is defiling a corpse. After the fact, I don't know. Um, so wait a minute, wait a minute. With her caved-in head, he raped her body? Yes. Oh, God. This is the boogeyman that I laid in bed and <laughs> thought about at night. Is he going to come to our home? Well, I mean, <laughs> I could see that. I mean... He had no reservations attacking a pasture and his wife. I mean, your dad's a pasture. Yeah. So I, I could see that. And it's like right down, not necessarily right down the street, 47 miles is not right down the street. But that is a significance in terms of a closeness. It's like he's getting closer. So I'll tell you a little something about Texas. 46 miles is a block away. Is it? In Texas time. Okay. So in Gonzales, Texas, there's little towns all over. And those are your neighbors. Those are like your next door neighbors. Even if it's 20 miles, 46 miles, Weimer, we played them in sports. That was our people, you know? Right. So it was hitting home. Now, this is where it gets interesting. It gets interesting. 1999, we're still, I just graduated high school. Growing up in San Antonio, Texas, in 1991, where Resendez began shedding blood along the railroad tracks then moving i moved to gonzalez texas in 1994 and i only lived 46 miles from this now murder so i remember him murdering michael white in 1991 right and then here i am three years later living in gonzalez texas in the next town over someone's getting murdered a pastor and i'm living in my dad's house and he's a pastor it's just it's like this killer is following me right So, Rafael Resendez Ramirez was the talk of small-town Gonzales, Texas. Now, Gonzales, Texas is a town of 6,500 people. The Cowboys run the town. And so, all the town's cattlemen were up in arms, literally, literally up in arms, about this railroad killer on the loose. 
we heard that there was a $40,000 reward. It was the talk of the town. It was on the front page of every daily paper. It was on the radio, $40,000 reward. Who fronted that money? The FBI came in and the state. I don't know exactly who was going to give it, but it was it was a uh, it was definitely a law enforcement thing. I'm sure people in the town probably were willing to be offering forty thousand dollars if we'll just stop this guy because the whole town was scared to death. Right, pull their money together. Now, um, I recall, I I can recall this plain as day, that town hall meetings were set up, bar rooms. If you go to any bar in town. There was a little bar in the square of Gonzalez called the Long Branch, and they had swinging doors. And people were talking about going to get this killer Mm -hmm. for that $40,000. People were meeting in the town square. Let's go hunt for this killer. And um, So it actually sounds like a Jaws moment where they meet with all the fishermen and law enforcement and the... And I think it's either the school or the library and the guy with that dramatic moment where he puts his fingernails to the chalkboard. (laughs) Correct. I'll hunt him. I'll catch this fish for you. Correct. It kind of sounds like that. You know, they're getting the tile riled up and getting people motivated to go out there. Yeah. And um, in Gonzales, Texas, we worked on ranches. We rode horses. We worked cattle. If something was going on, you saddled up your horses and went and found out what was hurting your cattle, what was doing this, what was going on. Right. So, literally, cowboys were saddling up horses, putting them in trailers. Cowgirls were driving big trucks. I mean, we all drove big trucks, but each rancher had their own set of vehicles, their fleet. We were loading up in trucks, and we were driving out to the tracks. There was railroad tracks through Gonzales that went... All the way from, they went down to Houston. They went all the way, they would meet up with other tracks that went to Florida. So he was coming by there. There was actually stories I heard my classmates say when we were sitting around with friends. They would talk about finding a railroad car with stuff in it where it looked like somebody had been living there. And they assumed it was this railroad killer. I mean, this was the weekend plan. People were out on the weekends. I drove in one of those trucks and so went to look for Basically, you guys kind of had like hunting parties. Yeah, we were bounty hunting. We had no clue, but we had guns, and we had trucks, and we had horses. So we went to try to get that $40,000, you know? I mean, high school kids, let's go hunt a killer. Right. In Texas, we have enough guns. We're not scared of killers, except I really was scared this killer was wild. So the people of Gonzales were terrified as the tracks ran straight through the county, and a serial killer was on the loose. Now... Before his final run of murders, Resendez, this is so crazy, was captured by immigration, and guess what? Released. June 1st, 1999, Border Patrol near El Paso, Texas border took him into custody and allowed him to return to Mexico the following day. Two days later, he was back in Texas to kill again. Now, important fact about El Paso, Texas... I lived there. I'll get to that later. Okay. Here I am, living by the killer again. June 4th, 1999, a couple days later, three days after his arrest, he broke into an apartment of, sc- of a school teacher named Naomi Dominguez. Number 20, She's 26 years old, sexually assaulting her before bludgeoning her to death with a pickaxe. Three days after immigration picked him up, he already got deported to Mexico, left Mexico back into Texas, breaks into this lady's apartment in Houston, Texas, 
sexually assaults her before bludgeoning her to death with a pickaxe. He then stole her car and later that day used the same pickaxe to murder Josephine Convica, 73, in her farmhouse in Fayette County, Texas, one hour from Gonzales. So, so here I am. It's like he's almost circling you. Uh, correct. Uh, summer before college. I'm waiting to go to college, and here I am. The serial killer still running around. So the L.A. Times reported that investigators were looking for Mexican drifter Rafael Resendez Ramirez. So now the L.A. Times is reporting this. The FBI is reporting it. It's national news. They have confirmed all these murders are him. Connected. Correct. The following day, Resendez broke into the home of 80-year-old George Mover Sr., located 100 yards from the tracks, get it, in Gorham, Illinois. So he made his way north. Remember he attacked those runaways from Illinois? Right. Now he's back killing people in Illinois. So Morber was shot in the head in his home. Now this time he shot him. Where did he get the gun? He had weapons charges all throughout his killing spree. Interesting. So he always obtained weapons somehow. So then his daughter, George's daughter, came to visit him. She was 52 years old. Her name was Carolyn Frederick. And Resendez was waiting in the house and beat her with the shotgun until the shotgun snapped. Oh, my God. He beat her so brutally that it broke the shotgun. Jesus Christ. And those things are made to, like, last years, centuries, decades. Correct. God damn. So Resendez left fingerprints all over Morbier's home before stealing his truck and making his way back to Mexico. Jesus Christ. Had to go check on the wife and the daughter. Right. You know, new baby girl. Did grandma die? Did mom die by then? Or Oh, man, you have to wait and see what happens to mom. Okay. Okay. So we're getting down to the wire. Everybody knows about him. The FBI has put him out. And a week later, after he went to Mexico, he was actually... They actually corrected his name. He was no longer Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He was now Angel Resendez. That's so his, they got there. Yep. Okay. The FBI their got their information. Facts right. That's not a little unnerving considering it's the FBI and we rely on them to be top dog and in information and having correct information. But anywho. Correct. He has they had his name wrong this whole time. Right. He's been arrested I don't know how many times in the middle of his So do we think the the incorrect name kind of led to migration releasing him because they didn't have the correct name? I would imagine that had something to do with it. Yeah. All right. Behind the scenes now. Okay. So FBI put him on the top ten most wanted, so it's out there. But behind the scenes, Resendez family worked with the Texas Rangers. To facilitate a peaceful surrender. So he's back in Mexico. FBI has blasted him. His picture's everywhere. I could draw a sketch of him without even looking at his face. Like, I know him from the news. I feel like if I saw him on the street, I would know him. So how did they piece together who it was to reach out to the family? Do we know how that happened or... Through the database, through his immigration, through his legal... I'm sure fingerprints caught up to him. Right. You know, the investigation was between Mexico and the United States, and so there's so much information. I don't have a direct answer for you, but they figured it out, and the Texas Rangers worked with his own family to facilitate, yeah, and his mother to facilitate a peaceful surrender. So, but fearful of bounty hunters like the great cowboys of Gonzales, right? um, (laughs) Okay, and retaliation from vigilantes. 
Uh, Rosinda's sister actually met with Ranger Drew Carter, shaking hands with him before being taken into custody. So Ranger Carter actually shook Raphael's hand before he, or I should say Angel's hand, before he took him into custody. Okay. So now we have the mom, the wife, and the sister. Now oh, you'll see right. how the wife and the mom play a part in just, uh, well, remember earlier I said they gave back the jewelry. Right. That was stolen. So they. The um, ones that weren't melted down. Correct. So the things that they had, they did give back. And now the sister's working with the Texas Rangers. And so she has now aided and helped in his surrender. So Drew Carter shook his hand, took him into custody, and he was accompanied by two of his brothers and a pastor. Okay. Um, fun fact, a friend of mine that I lived with in El Paso, Texas, actually worked for U.S. Um, Customs and was actually part of the team that was there during his surrender. Right. So that must have been exciting. Correct. And now I've lived in El Paso, Texas, and I hear this story of the real-life boogeyman being taken in by my roommate. So he, it's like he's getting closer and closer to you. Yes. So this real-life boogeyman has followed me from San Antonio to Gonzales to El Paso. Well, I is so my assumption is the reign of terror ends here. Oh, let me tell you about the trial. And I have his final words here. Okay. In trial of murder, Claudia Benton, Resendez. Now, he had killed Claudia Benton. That was the first trial that went to trial. They had the most evidence. Um, Resendez pled not guilty, claiming he was an angel sent by God to punish those he thought were evil and deserved to die. So just to be clear, they didn't try him for all the crimes at once. They did it separately? Correct. Okay. And the research shows that they kind of just tacked Like he, once they tried him, and obviously the jury didn't buy it and sentenced him to death. For Claudia. Correct. Once that was a done deal, he began confessing, telling him where the bodies were, what he did, where the weapons were, and he just went on a spree of telling him all the business. Okay. I'm actually not sure how many trials they did pass that. He got the death penalty, and in Texas, that's what he was, that was his demise. So the execution, we're going to talk about his execution, June 27, 2006. When he was in jail... From 1999 to 2006? Seven years. Yeah, they had him in protective custody. He was a laborer, of course, in Texas. You're going to be in jail. You're going to work. He was a laborer. But he had to be in protective custody. People in Texas were mad. You don't you don't kill one of us, even if we're not related. Right. So Angel Resendez was executed by the state of Texas by a lethal injection before his death, though. He asked for forgiveness from the victim's family members in attendance. Now, he didn't even have a last meal. He was Catholic, and so he felt like it was his penance. He didn't deserve a meal. Um, sure, after and so, all that. Correct. And so here is the, his last words. He spoke to the family. There were several family members there of the victims. His mom and his sister actually were at his execution. Oh, interesting. Okay. He said, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience with me. I don't deserve it because I caused you pain. You did not deserve this. I deserve what I am getting. Before drawing his last breath, the killer, who claimed to be Jewish. What? What? Correct. 
He claimed to be Jewish, so he prayed in Hebrew <laughs> and Spanish. Okay. Right before he took his last breath. What? So, did anybody do any psychological tests? Like, this guy's just straight cray-cray or uh, insane? In the, I mean... Now, Vina, let me enlighten you to um, Texan culture. Okay. You killed people. You got caught. You got sentenced to death. You go to jail, and you just die. That's it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I just... It's interesting that he claimed to be Jewish at the last moment because, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in the Jewish religion and culture, there is no heaven. You just die. And perhaps he's thinking if he had that mentality, he won't have to face the consequences waiting for him on the other side. But he also takes ownership, so I don't know. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. And there is quite a bit of research. He stayed pretty active in his faith in prison. The um, Catholic or the, the newfound Judaism? He actually mostly went to, uh, I don't even, it doesn't say anything about his Judaism other than his execution. He was Jewish. Okay. But in prison, he was active in his faith. He went to church in prison. He studied the Bible in prison. And um, really seemed to have a change of heart. Oh, it's a miracle, goddamn. It's a miracle. <laughs> Correct. At the trial, he was not taking ownership. He pled not guilty. And now he is taking ownership, asking for forgiveness. And before he f- said that he was an angel of God to punish people that deserve to die because he thought they were evil. Now he is saying, you didn't deserve this. Please forgive me. I and wonder if he I'm saw be that Jewish and die. Right. I wonder if he saw that if you know I I don't know. You're not Catholic, but in the Catholic religion, you confess your sins, you do a couple of Hail Marys and you're solid again. You're on good ground with God. Maybe he was kind of thinking, if I confess, ask for some forgiveness, do a few Hail Marys, we're solid again before I go. I don't know. And that, but maybe he had a panic attack and change of religion all of a sudden and claimed Judaism as uh, his final fleeting religion as he's walking out the door. Wow. Okay. So this is the railroad killer of San Antonio, of Gonzales and El Paso, as well as Georgia. And Florida. And Florida. The guy got around. The guy certainly got around. Now, in our previous discussions, you said that the high school kind of did a, some interesting things that I thought were pretty interesting. You know, being in California, I don't think on any level California would ever allow this to happen. But you had mentioned some interesting things that they would do, let you guys do. Yeah. So during this time, you know, of course it was getting to be the end of the year. But parents were scared. The town was in an uproar. The serial killers on the loose. On early out days and stuff, kids would get together and saddle up horses and go look for this killer. I remember the school being shut down because they actually, someone reported they spot him in old Mr. So-and-so's pasture. They closed the school. Kids are going to go look for this guy. I mean, in Gonzales, Texas, I remember an incident where a girlfriend and a boyfriend got in a fight. The girlfriend, you know when you took your scissors back in elementary and you could pull the little plastic handle off and tape them in the middle and those kind of, I don't know. Anyway, this girl made a weapon out of some safety okay. scissors and stabbed a guy. <laughs> oh. And the state officials came in and they searched our campus for weapons. 
And I remember all of us in the gymnasium bringing in shotguns from our trucks outside in the parking lot and putting them in giant trash cans. And the state's like, you can't have these weapons at school. And everybody's like, they're not weapons. Like, we use them for work every day. So it was nothing for the kids in high school to jump in a truck, have a gun rack with three shotguns on it, and go look for the railroad killer. I wanted the $40,000. Right. And my understanding, you actually saddled up. Oh, yeah. We went, when we checked cows, we would go by the railroad tracks and look around and those kind of things. And I remember going out at night and we would look for them. I mean, that's what we did on the weekends for that whole time span, trying to find this killer. Doing your part, the, you know, Texas style. Yes, and, you know, the $40,000 was an incentive, but beyond that, this guy's offending the entire state of Texas. Right. Well, it is... A large degree, to a large degree, very unnerving, not knowing if you're walking into a situation where you're going to be ambushed in your own home. I mean, the first guy was killed in the front yard. Correct. I mean, you can't even be out in public. And the story was, he actually just went to get his paper. So it was early morning, and he just walked up and killed him. Just like that. Mm -hmm. Getting your newspaper. Correct. Damn. So the wife didn't go to the execution. Was he mad? Was he pissed? You know, from what I read about his family and what I know from my firsthand experience in small town Mexico, I would imagine the wife was upset. Here she is, a little mom. She probably thought he was bringing her these things that he purchased in the States. Right. He had just been supporting her. He was going out to work for his family. And it seemed to me like the mom and the sister were the ones that were like, this is not right. This is not okay. And it seems to me like the wife just kind of disowned him once she found out. Right. So sometimes, not always, there's a tragic or horrific past or situation that they were subjected to growing up that kind of makes them do or act out these horrific things. Did he have that kind of history or no? You know, I didn't find anything about his personal history in Mexico it would be interesting to talk to my family members from Mexico City right um, that uh, may have a different take or they may have some information but as far as our records go uh, as I was looking him up I couldn't find anything but I did find that he started out criminal behavior as a teenager illegally entering the U.S. it seemed like he always was in and out of jail and custody Okay, and so he, he has deported. a criminal history. Yeah, and he was deported several times. So it's just procedure to him. Correct. Okay. All right, well, thank you very, very much for joining us and sharing this, I mean, pretty intense and incredible story. And like I said, it's always interesting to hear true accounts when you're in the mix of things. For the most part, I'm always sharing some story, maybe even criminals, but I don't have like the interesting tidbits of some of those high schoolers saddled up and went riding looking for the guy. So things like that, I don't always get those kind of really neat and definite details that help complete the story as a whole. So, but thank you. All right. So that is all we have for you tonight. On to business. I have a Facebook page, and if you are curious or interested and would like to join, send me a request. In the meantime, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have another serial killer in mind that you would like to hear about, send me a request at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. 
final thoughts, Miss Daisy? I'm just glad to be able to share this serial killer that meant so much to me growing up. Right. Scared um, the bejeebies out of Kept me awake at night. And <laughs> now everyone knows his story. And just a little side note, if you would like to book Holly Dunn, the sole survivor of Rafael Resendez Ramirez, a.k.a. Angel Resendez, you could go to hollydunn.com. And you could book her as a motivational speaker for you. Well, she'd be a prime example of that for sure. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Mm-hmm.